I'm John McCumber. I'm a professor of Germanic languages at UCLA, and you are listening to Pada Bing. I'm Vic Singh, and you're listening to Pada Bing, a podcast that rigorously examines the Sopranos one episode at a time. This is the first installment of the Pada Bing PhD series. Topic one is Nietzsche. I traveled to UCLA's iconic Royce Hall to sit down with distinguished professor John McCumber to get an education and roadmap for understanding, or beginning to understand, Nietzsche. Nietzsche's work resonated with me long before The Sopranos. A lot of my original thinking was shaped by Catholic school education. And when I took a philosophy course in college that focused heavily on Nietzsche, I was blown away. They say the pen is mightier than the sword. That statement has never been more true when it's applied to Nietzsche. What struck me the most, besides eviscerating religion, was underneath all of his rancor and pessimism was a deep and profound fascination with and belief in excelling against all odds. Like Yoda said, do or do not. There is no try. That was Nietzsche. Quit blaming, quit searching, quit waiting, quit overthinking. Just do and iterate and adapt, reassess, change, and keep going. That's how one transcends pessimism, pity, existentialist angst, doubt. And it's got to come from within, with the support and inspiration of music and the arts, he argued. But not from dogma, other people, divine intervention, or luck. Professor McCumber cemented this and provided a wonderful framework on how to think about and access Nietzsche in his work. That's all I got. Here's me getting an education from Professor John McCumber at UCLA. Professor McCumber, thank you for inviting me to your office at uh, Royce Hall in UCLA. It's a pleasure to be with you. No problem. Happy to do it. First question for you, in what order should people consume Nietzsche's work? I don't think it's really crucial to read him in any particular order because he only wrote really for 10 years and he did not evolve a lot in that period of time. So the first thing to read, you know, is probably uh, The Birth of Tragedy uh, because that's where he's first to getting these ideas, and they're kind of unclear and in, in show it. Uh, then you've got about seven or eight books that you can read pretty much as you wish. They're very, well, they're aphorisms, right? And so you can sort of, you could, in theory, take one out of one book and put it into another book and, you know, mess them around that way. It's not... It's not, the, the books are not sustained. It is not a sustained argument. He didn't have a design, in other words. He didn't, he, well, I mean, he did and he didn't, right? I mean, he had certain points he wanted to get across uh, over and over again, <clears throat> and he did that. 
but it's not like, for example, if you read Kant, part one, I wish I show thus and so, and then on the basis of that, I'd part two, thus and so, and part three, thus. It's not that way. It's aphorisms. Nietzsche said that he wanted his books to be readable in train stations, between trains. Uh, and so they're not, they, they don't require uh, sustained, they don't invite sustained reading to try and get the overall architectonic. It's not, there's basic concerns and themes, but not that, not that kind of structure. So the middle works, human alter human on genealogy of morals, uh, thus spoke Zarathustra, things like that. Uh, you can read sort of as you wish. And then the books of his last year, as he is really trying to stay sane, uh, should probably be read together, Ece Homo, Antichrist, uh, those books. So that's that's kind of the way, but three part, three parts. But it's not uh, mandatory by any means. So his endeavor was to make them digestible bits, huh? Yeah. Wow. Mm -hmm. Fits our modern culture actually, if you think about it. Because we well, know, yes, it does. One and of my is... my questions about why is he such a mainstream philosopher to this day? That might play into it. Mm -hmm. What did he read? Who were his influences? Yeah, he didn't know much about German philosophy. Uh, he knew a little Kant, and that's about it. He uh, he was a classicist, and his main, I think, his what does that mean? Uh, classicist. He studied ancient Greek literature, basically. Uh, classicists also study Roman, but he didn't. He he was mostly in in the Greeks, and I think his biggest single influence among them is Homer, the Iliad. He's uh, he has internalized a lot of the Homeric worldview. Which is? Which is a very gloomy, pessimistic worldview uh, in that they don't believe in any kind of viable afterlife. They think the afterlife is, is going to be just miserable, whether you're good or bad, doesn't matter. It's going to be a miserable existence forever. And so the only joy, uh, the only pleasure in life, it's in life, it's in this world. And that, that's one of his main themes, right? You don't mm -hmm. postpone pleasure for the next world because Nietzsche doesn't think there's any at all. I mean, he doesn't think there's a bad one, but he thinks there's none at all. So he, he gets that from Homer. And then the other thing he gets from Homer is the importance of uh, conflict. Uh, Nietzsche believes in power. Power is the ability to overcome obstacles. Obstacles, therefore, have to exist. And power is only really actual when it is confronting an obstacle and trying to assert itself in the face of that obstacle. Otherwise, it doesn't, it's like an electric uh, current that, or electric charge that doesn't discharge. It's not really there. Mm. And in order to, to attain to real existence, it has to meet opposition. Uh, and that's also there in Homer, it's implicit. But uh, these guys, the Homeric uh, warriors, they really only are alive when they're fighting. You know, that's, mm. And same for Nietzsche. Fair to say, if we want to get some deeper context to Nietzsche, that Homer is a great bedrock? I think Homer is a great bedrock. Uh, I think Darwin is also a great bedrock. These were his rock stars, in other words. Yeah, he, he talks about Homer fairly often. And some parts, for example, of the discussion of the, the overman, the Übermensch, in uh, the genealogy of morals, are basically cribbed from Homer, almost. Darwin, he rarely mentions, but Darwin, the idea that we, we are the way we are because we have 
evolved to be that way via a struggle for survival and to reproduce. He doesn't believe in survival and reproduction. He, he thinks flourishing is the goal. But uh, the idea that there's, we are the result of generations of survival of the fittest, or recently for us, of the unfittest. He thinks evolution has kind of gone backwards. From the standpoint of treating this uh, conversation as like a survey course, if you will, mm-hmm. what questions does he help us answer? Well, he develops this critique of religion, which is, you know, people are, uh, all, all surveys indicate people are kind of walking away from organized religion, particularly younger people. And Nietzsche walked away from it a long time ago. And he has dealt with the issues that arise in that context. Is there a fulcrum when he walked away from it? Is there a reason that he addresses or alludes to as to why he disavows it so strongly? No, he says that when he was an early teenager, like 13, 14, uh, he realized that the idea that a good God is running the show is just inane. Uh, And he doesn't talk about it in any more depth than that. Uh, it's a, it's, there's, there's something biographical going on there because his father was a Protestant minister who died when he was about five. So there's, I think there's some, something about that is going on, mm-hmm. but he doesn't tell us what. Probably doesn't know. So he helps us answer, how do you live without God? That's one. Okay. Second, he helps us answer, how do you live when, there, when the only value is value that you create? Uh, when nothing has any significance except when you declare or we declare that it does. Uh, and so he talks about that and he, he provides, uh, uh, actually he provides a set of values that you can create for yourself. Uh, values that are entirely located in this life, this world. Uh, the world that we're in, not for very long. How did he get on the map what made people take note and elevate him to the status of a philosopher? Yeah, that's, that's actually quite a story. He was, until very recently, I think maybe even still, was the youngest person ever to get a PhD in the humanities in the German-speaking world. He was 24. Uh, so he was considered early on to be a genius. Uh, then he... Uh, got a job at the age of 24 as a full professor uh, in Switzerland at the University of Basel. He then developed health problems. He was there for about 8 or 10 years and developed health problems uh, that had to do with migraine headaches mostly, but other things too. I mean, migraines, they bring you stomach upsets and things like that. So he was pensioned off by the time he was, uh, oh, about 40 And then he spent the next 10 years on a full salary. He was given his full salary. He spent the next 10 years wandering through Europe. And that's where he was, uh, he wrote these 10 books, one book a year, that we read today. When he was on this wilderness journey. On this wilderness journey. And it was a wilderness journey because he could not be in any kind of city because the air would give him these migraines that Mm. come on. And he would suffer from him for days on end, and all he could do was lie on his bed with a washcloth over his face. That was all he had. So uh, he did his best to avoid it. So if you go to the picturesque corners of Europe, the mountains like Davos, where all the 
the powerful people are going to be next month. Well, there's a small hotel there with a little plaque by the door. It says Friedrich Nietzsche lived here. Hmm. Uh, and throughout throughout Europe and in, in places of great natural beauty and pure air. So anyway, he's in Turin. We don't know why, because that was then as today a very industrial city. But he was there for two days. I suspect he was trying to make travel arrangements that fell through, and he was trying to rebook or something. And he <clears throat> he saw a horse. So he's about forty now. He's no, he's about fifty. He saw a horse being whipped on the street. It was an old horse, and it had fallen down. Uh, it was trying to pull a wagon. The guy was whipping it to get it up. It couldn't get up. Nietzsche runs up, throws his arms around the horse's neck, gets between the whip and the horse, and passes out. When he wakes up, he is completely unresponsive. He never again says a word. Uh, he looks straight ahead. Uh, apparently, you could get him out of bed in the morning and sit him in a chair. You could feed him. Mm. But he never recognized or acknowledged the presence of anybody. So his sister came and got him. And she takes him back to their house, where she lived with her mother, in Weimar. And he installs him on the second floor. And that's when he began to get famous. While he was alive, nobody bought his books. Nobody cared. It's all posthumous. He, yeah. The fame is all posthumous. And it came about, first, through his sister who started issuing, reissuing his works. Nobody had bought them before. Now they bought them. Why did they buy Because she edited them. She edited them in ways that were totally opposed to Nietzsche himself. Because she was, her husband was a professional anti-Semite. And she edited them as racist. And so Nietzsche, that's how he caught on, I'm afraid with the Germans, <clears throat> was because they thought he was a racist. He wasn't. But, okay, so he gets known that way. People start visiting him. They get really impressed by the fact that he's just sitting there staring straight ahead. They say, wow, what profundity, right? He's, he's looked into the abyss and looked in there too deeply, and now he fried his brain. So uh, I don't know what fried his brain. Something sure did. But he uh, then becomes famous in that way. So after World War II, he was done. I mean, nobody needed another German racist philosopher. Mm. So he was finished, except an American by the name of Walter Kaufmann. Right. Heard from various Germans, you know, if you go to Weimar and actually look at the manuscripts, it's different. And he did that. He, the sister was dead by then. The, the mother had died long before. He got in there, looked at the manuscripts, and salvaged Nietzsche and discovered that what he really is is a hyper-individualist. He's not a racist. He doesn't think that the way you're born means anything. What means anything is the way you respond to the challenges that arise in your life. And some mm. do and some don't. That so, right there, what yeah. you just said, is the essence of what is conveyed in The Sopranos, too. That... Yeah. What you were born into doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. It's what you do with that. It's what you do with it. It's how, and so and Walter it, Kaufman, just to just to summarize, would you say he is largely responsible for bringing Nietzsche out yes, into the Nobody would care about Nietzsche today if it weren't he for was, him. If it weren't for him. It's one is of the great around? stories of scholarship. No, he died about 20 years ago. Okay. One of the great stories of scholarship. Uh, we we remember the the mountains 
but we forget about all the foothills, these people that help and facilitate and make things possible. And there wouldn't be any Nietzsche without him. I think that's pretty clear. Every title that I have that I mentioned to you a moment ago is Walter Kaufman's name is also on it. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, there have been translations. He re- translated a lot of Nietzsche. Uh, some of the translations have been redone. I think in cases, in some areas, there are marginal improvements. Nobody's going to come close to Nietzsche. Nobody can write English as well as he wrote German. But uh, uh, And something's always lost in translation. Uh, things are... Yeah, so I always tell but my Kaufman students, came close. it's worth learning German just to read Nietzsche. Interesting. He is so brilliant. It's just uh, stunning to read him. Have and you read him in German? I've only read him in German. I've uh, never read... The, the translations. Never read... Uh, maybe the first time through I read him in English, but after that I learned German and I uh, never touched it. How did he become a mainstream pop culture philosopher unlike really any other? People talk about him today in 2020, mm-hmm. uh, at least in the circles that I'm in. You hear his name come up, TV shows, radio, podcasts, mm-hmm. cinema. Unlike other names, is there a je ne sais quoi that you can attribute to that? I don't, I don't really know. I think that the fact that he is so accessible, he's, he is a brilliant writer, and in English that comes through, and in French it comes through uh, to some degree. And the fact that he writes in short bursts, you know, these little aphorisms and things, uh, they make his work accessible. They are also very misleading. He is so easy to take out of context. Yeah, he's got a theory uh, that goes actually back to Plato that what really goes on in the world is things, is change happens quickly. It goes slowly, 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 bam, whips around. So, uh, you know, if you're you have a pot of water above a, a fire, uh, gradually getting warmer, 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 hot. And he writes that way. So he'll lead you in one direction, lead you, lead you, lead you, and then slam you back the other direction. And if you don't read all the way to the slam, you can get in a whole lot of trouble. Hmm. Uh, Leopold and Loeb were two uh, very bright young Americans who read Nietzsche, but they didn't read him all the way. And they thought that they would prove that they were overmen, Ubermenschen, by killing somebody. And they did, and they went to jail. <laughs> they never, Loeb, uh, Loeb eventually uh, died in jail, and Leopold got out as an old man. Hmm. So uh, you can get in horrible trouble if you don't know all, you know. But the accessibility is on the surface, and then you have to really think about it before you buy into any of it. His little bursts are almost like uh, gateway drugs. Right? They yeah, seduce yeah, you they're, into they're reading almost, more about him. Yes. He has, there's a Twitter account that is just Nietzsche quotes. Uh-huh. And I follow it because you get it. But then I always want to go and get the context for it. So no one has connected the dot That's right, on that. Yeah. Because out of context, it means something completely different. That's right. But it is a powerful hook, if you will. Yes, he's brilliant at that. Um, yeah. Sort of as, as artfully as you can. I know there's a, a lot. Christianity was a huge sort of... Uh, uh, I wrote a long paper on Nietzsche back when I was in school, mm. and I went to Catholic school. So <clears throat> when I read him talk about Christianity, I was blown away, and I remember writing about that. So there's a, the point being setting that up is there's a, lot, there's a lot more than you can say in one podcast, but just generally speaking, what were Nietzsche's views on Christianity, Buddhism, religion in general? Okay, Christianity uh, is, he says, the greatest sickness ever to befall humanity. And the reason for that is that it takes an imaginary world, heavenly world, 
and uses that world to structure this world that we live in. Uh, and he thinks that's just crazy and evil and terrible and bad for everybody and leads to people with horrible migraine headaches and things like that. So he, uh, he's really deeply more opposed to Christianity than to any other religion. It's the absolute bottom. Uh, he does have, for example, uh, nasty things to say about Judaism. Uh, and so when his sister edited out all the good things he says and left those, we had this problem of context that we just talked about. And people took him for an anti-Semite. But in fact, when you read him carefully, <laughs> the worst thing about Judaism was that it gave birth to Christianity. Mm. That, was the, that was the big horror. Uh, because Christianity, as I say, it inverts everything. It takes this imaginary world and makes us behave in ways that are inimical to our life in this world because we're supposed to orient ourselves to that to that world. Buddhism doesn't do that. Uh, he's much more, uh, how would I say, much more sympathetic to Buddhism, but he knows very little about it. So he, uh, uh, for example, he doesn't believe in free will. So the idea of gradually accepting that and... Uh, what is free will? Well, free will for him is the ability to say, I could have gone either of multi or any of multiple directions and still been me. And he doesn't think that's true. If, if, uh, if you're you, at each phrase, at each moment, there's only one thing that you can really do to be yourself. And he finds that in Buddhism. And uh, he thinks that uh, accepting that means accepting the world and accepting life. And so he's got this idea that's kind of distantly similar to enlightenment, right? The word, this is how the world is, and that's just fine. That's good. Uh, he's not, he has this place for conflict that you don't find so much in Buddhism, but, but uh, in, over and above the conflict, you have to accept the idea that you are continually in conflict for Nietzsche. So this acceptance, this enlightenment. Is there any religion that he was a fan of or a proponent of? Or was it the individual? No, I don't think he really liked any religion. Okay. Uh, the structure of it, the hierarchy of it, was that a component? Well, anything that is theistic okay. is, is positing an imaginary being and then making us obey that being. Now, Buddhism is not theistic, so he you know, finds that good, too. Right. Yeah. I'm going to cite a specific quote and ask you to discuss or parse it. First off, what do you think makes him so quotable? Is it these bursts? That's, that's, we think we kind of already hit on that question. But. Well, he's aiming to be quotable, but a lot of people aim to be quotable. Yeah. He can do it. He can do it. He can, he can pull it off. Uh, and I, why, why he can do that, I don't know. I mean, he's, that, this is genius. This is. First one, God is dead. What does that mean to you today? Can you contextualize it? Uh, the usual way that that is contextualized is to say the God used to be not never existent for Nietzsche. There never was a God. But there were, the idea of God was a living force in society for a long time, and it isn't anymore. So God is dead, and we killed him. We decided that we didn't need that kind of a being in order to live our lives. Now, he's a little in advance of his times on that. Uh, but uh, but that's the way it's usually looked at. Some there are some people that 
will try to tell you that he thinks there was a God once and that God actually did die. <clears throat> but uh, uh, mostly, no. It's a, it's, it's a view of the significance of the, or the force of the idea of God in culture that died. What is the German translation of that, God is dead? Uh, the Gott ist tot. Without music, life would be a mistake. Yeah, I think that's the early uh, Nietzsche. Sounds like it. Although, uh, I mean, it could be later also, but he was very influenced by music early on and was a great fan of Richard Wagner and was a friend of Wagner's for a long time. And then he couldn't take, for example, the anti-Semitism. And, and he broke with Wagner. But as uh, in the early writings, uh, life is kind of, as the Buddha would say, sorrow, dukkha, painful, misery. And what saves us is art, and in particular music, which teaches us uh, the way things emerge from chaos. The way music emerges from noise uh, is the way uh, we can bring beauty out on the world, into the world. And that's the purpose of life in the early Nietzsche. Can you translate that into German? Without music, life would be a mistake. Ohne die Musik wäre das Leben ein Fehler. There's another quote that he has that's music related that is, uh, those who were dancing were thought to be insane by the ones who could not hear the music. I, mm -hmm. I'm kind of missing that a little bit, but I had that printed out and on my desk. I was a, I'm a failed musician and I, mm -hmm. I think I connected with Nietzsche because of his, <laughs> he loved music. Yeah. He, he wrote about all, it a lot. All his and life. He always loved he was, music. He had all this rancor for all this other stuff, but then he had, he had music as like this elevated, music was kind of a religion yeah. and it was this elevated place. Yeah, exactly. Um, Fair enough. If there is to be art, if there is to be any aesthetic doing and seeing, one physiological condition is indispensable. Frenzy. Can you parse that? Uh, yeah. If you look at the early Nietzsche, you've got, you've got the world that we think we live in, which is, he calls Apollinean. Uh, it's a world that defines shapes and surfaces and colors and things, and everything is comprehensible. But throbbing and roiling and moving beneath this is a world where there are no boundaries, where things are indistinct and, and they don't, uh, they're not separate from one another. And to move, art moves us, and music too, moves us into that world. And then we have to leave it after a while, but it moves us in there. And so to inhabit that kind of a world is frenzy. Bacchanalian frenzy. So he, he likes that. Hmm. Yeah. That which, this is probably one of his most famous ones, I would say, for anybody who's never ever heard of him, you've heard this quote. That which does not kill us makes us stronger. Can yeah. you translate that and can you contextualize that one? Yeah, well, you, uh, the, I mean, it's very famous and it's true, but it also is self-referential. I mean, Nietzsche is... You know, he had a tough life with this illness of his. And uh, he's saying, bring it on. You know, I will fight. I will, I will oppose this. And it will make me stronger. The, the underlying idea, the same one that he's always got, the idea that conflict and opposition are necessary to life. So if something is trying to kill you and it doesn't succeed, that's good for you. It makes you stronger. That's how you exist. It makes you, not only makes you stronger, it makes you exist in the first place. Hmm. 
And what would the translation for that be? Uh, as he would have written it. As he would have. Well, I, look, if I was able to write like Nietzsche. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, my guess would be, was mich nicht tötet, verstört mich. A couple more. I'm not a, I love this one. I've used it so many times. Uh, I actually might be saying something about me and the people I surround myself with, but mm. I'm not upset that you lied to me. I'm upset yeah. that from now on I can't believe you. Uh -huh. Beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, I think the context there is Nietzsche does not believe in guilt. He doesn't believe in uh, making people feel bad about themselves because of something that they've done. Uh, for one thing, he doesn't think you have any choice about doing what you do. But for another thing, he thinks that life has the value that we give it, and those values change from moment to moment, depending on the particular challenge that you're facing at any time. So the fact that you lied to me, maybe that was a good thing for you to do. Maybe that was fine in the context. But if you lie to me, you may lie to me again. And so I, now I can't believe you. I have to deal with you uh, in a conflictual way as somebody who may not be telling me the truth. And I'm sorry about that, but that's just part of, of life. If some, somebody uh, comes at me with a, uh, a sword and he's got a better sword than I do, that's part of life. That's too bad. Hmm. You know, I'm sorry that he's got a better sword than I do, but it's not any problem of his. And similarly, it's not your problem that you lied to me. It's my problem. Well said. German translation? Es stört mich nicht, dass du mir gelügt hast. Was mich stört, ist, dass ich dich niemals glauben kann. When you stare into the abyss, you alluded to this one a moment yeah. ago. When you stare into the abyss, the abyss stares yeah, back at you. Uh, What's he talking about? What's the abyss? The abyss is the nature of reality. The fact that we're out here with no guidance. Uh, you have to surmount the next challenge. You have no idea what it's going to be, where it's going to come from. Uh, your minister, your priest, your rabbi isn't going to help you. Uh, they'll tell you things, but the, the things that they tell you are unlikely to be helpful. If they are, it's only by accident. So that's the abyss. There's no value out there uh, except you need to flourish as a being. So, uh, and flourish, flourishing, what flourishing is gets redefined moment by moment anyway. So everything is in flux. Everything is uh, frenzy. And that's the abyss. Now, the part about the abyss staring back at you, I don't know that that's more than just Nietzsche being, you know, having a wry sense of humor. I don't, uh, he certainly is not going to personify the abyss in any way. Uh, but he's, he's got a great sense of humor. And I think that may be part of that. I think a lot of people that read that, um, just, I'll just isolate it and make it about myself for a moment. When I read that, even today, um, it's about wanting to, we're always giving, or we're in, this, mm -hmm. we're in this constant pursuit, and we're always wondering if something is looking back at us or something is uh, giving back, if there's like a reciprocity. Right. That's my takeaway. But well, we, a, we do wonder that. Yeah, and he might be satirizing that because yeah. he doesn't believe it. Yeah, he doesn't think there's something. There's not a that's going to answer personifiable back. thing. Yeah. That's gonna, there's no karma for him. Final quote. Oh, uh, translate that for me. I'm sorry. When you stare into the abyss, the abyss stares back at you. When du in den Abgrund schaust, uh, kann 
abgrundig anschauen. Pain is certain. Suffering is optional. Yeah. Genius. Yes, yes. Um, what's he talking about? Uh, he has a discussion in the genealogy of morals. Pain is part of life. Therefore, pain is not evil. Pain is just ah. there. Uh, you know, it's too bad, but it's not. It's, it's beyond good and evil, as as he would say. Uh, where you make pain bad is when you feel that it's undeserved. I'm better than this. I shouldn't have to suffer this. Uh, then you compound your. You know, you don't just have the pain. You have your own psychological misery at being in pain, and that's suffering, and that's you don't have to do that. Uh, but he doesn't want to deny pain. Pain is part of life. Uh, if you wanted to, you want to live without pain, you don't want to live. So he's all for pain, but you shouldn't then turn around and say, "Oh, miserable me!" Oh, I'm so pity yourself or pity anybody else. Or he pity hates anybody. pity. Yeah, he hates pity. So it's uh, that's suffering. It's when you start moaning because your pain is undeserved. Fair to say, this is one of his most Buddhist. Quotes. I would think so. Yeah. Yeah. In terms of acceptance, knowing here's the world. It's not great. It's not fun a lot of times, but it's what we've got. Translation to pain is certain, suffering is optional. Das Schmerz ist sicher. Das Leiden ist optional, I guess. Generally speaking, what were his views on how envy? Can be positive. Yeah, envy. I mean, he loves to do this. He loves to take what the inherited morality around him condemns mm -hmm. and and argue that it's good. So we shouldn't envy people. Uh, envy is a sin, maybe even one of the seven deadly sins. Yes, I recall. And uh, but he wants to say, <clears throat> no, it's part of your nature. If you see somebody that's got something nice, you want it. And furthermore, you should try and get it <laughs> if you can. Uh, so he... he uh, Makes he you a better person. It makes you a stronger person. Right, stronger yeah, which person. Which is a better person. Yeah. yeah. So envy is, uh, is part of our nature and envy is good. It's like pain. You know, it's just there. Affirm it. I mean, you're not going to get rid of it. Don't try to deny it. It's part of you. His views on power. Power is the basic uh, reality for him. Uh, it's, not, it's not something that is exercised by other things. It's primordial, and things come to be because power coalesces around a conflict. And that's the, so will to power is the fundamental reality. It's not just human. It's deeper than we are. His view on self. So the self is constituted out of will to power. And it's mainly an illusion. Uh, the idea that I have a, have a fixed set of properties that I carry with me through life, ridiculous. He, he said that, that will get you killed uh, because you're going to have challenges that are going to have nothing to do with those properties. You're going to have to learn to be a new person hmm. from time to time. You're just going to have to. So accept that idea. Know it. He likes the human as an evolving, changing person. He would subscribe yeah. to that or yeah. advocate for that. Yes. Humans are changing radically all the time, and we should, because they have new challenges. And that's a good thing. And that's a good thing. That, well, 
Yeah, in his sense of a good. necessary yeah, thing. It's a necessary thing. It's a thing. It's to be affirmed. His views on love. I think he has problems with that. I think he's not really able to uh, assert that it's a value. He does talk about. You know, he's got this figure of the the overman, <clears throat> who doesn't Ubermensch. the ubermensch who doesn't uh, show up in any clear way because we're too corrupt to even understand what an ubermensch would be like. So he does refer to it occasionally. And at one point he says the ubermenschen uh, will care for one another the way wolves care for one another. Uh, and wolves do. I unpack, they, they cooperate. Uh, but they're, they're not what we would call selfless, uh, you know, lambs. Uh, so he's, you know, he's saying that there's got to be a form of community that is that does not deny opposition, but that uh, uh, permits cooperation through opposition somehow. And I don't think he gets very clear on that. I think that's that's one place where he's got a, a problem. Does he have a family? Does he marry? Oh no, no. He never marries. No children. No children. He uh, at one point he was in love with this woman, Lou Salome. And at one point he writes her, because he's wandering through Europe alone. He's got nobody to go with him. Uh, and he uh, writes her. How did he pay for that? It was well, the pension his, that you mentioned? Well, he was voted a full pension gotcha. at his university okay. the age of, at the age of 40. Uh, so he writes to her, and the letter begins sort of, uh, well, I, you wrote to me, and so I thought I'd write back to you. And, then, and that's one paragraph. The next paragraph begins, please don't be frightened by this, but will you marry me? <laughs> and it just bursts out mm. like that. And then the next letter to her says, oh, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. I was didn't... he rejected? Oh, yeah, she was horrified, particularly by the way he did it. But also, I mean, I don't think she had a lot of romantic feelings for him. Uh, so, yeah. Does he have any views on family, parenthood, fatherhood? Not really. No. Positive human relationships are not really his forte. That's not what we Interesting. Really... I like that you said that positive human relationships are not his forte. Why does his work resonate with creative pursuits, TV, film, art? I think because of this emphasis on constant newness. Don't be afraid to start, strike out in new directions because new directions are coming after you all the time. So you might as well just admit it and go with the flow. And I think that's part of creativity. Yeah. How does he sit with philosophers and academics today? I'm going to ask you at the end to kind of rank your favorite philosophers and i'm curious you can save that the the teaser oh. to the end but like how does he percolate through halls like this today well he's not liked very much in philosophy departments because they are all Why? they are all logicians they're very dedicated to logical this and that and nietzsche thinks logic is uh what he calls a shadow of god he says the laws of logic there is no law without a lawgiver they don't talk about it but it's a crypto theology. He doesn't like it. Uh, he thinks the world is illogical. What's true today is false tomorrow. Uh, it may even have been false all along. You know, it's just so you can't you can't separate. We don't know the truth. He doesn't have a representational view of mind. He thinks mind our my, our senses convey to us what we need information that we need. They don't tell us what the world is really like. So he's really got, not got a lot of room for logical analysis and that kind of thing. But in literature departments, and, and among some philosophers, he is very, very highly regarded, partly because he undermines all those things, uh, and partly because 
of these the points about the abyss, the points about where value comes from, and it comes from us, uh, that it never lasts, it doesn't hang around very long, things like that. Does the lack of you know, adulation for him come from, being, from disagreeing with his point of view, or is it because he's, it's, it's not, it doesn't fit within a nice silo of philosophy? It's the latter. It doesn't fit within a silo. Uh, they, they, they're trained to look for arguments. Okay. Well, one thing Nietzsche isn't going to bother with is arguing. He's yeah, just going to tell you. He's going to well. He's he's going to tell you, but he's going to tell you in fifteen different ways. He's going to tell you with jokes, with riddles, with songs, with poems, with nasty insults, uh, all kinds of ways. He's going to tell you and bring you around. But he doesn't think that uh, logical tr logical truth has any persuasive value anyway. So he doesn't care. It's a conflict. I mean, human discourse is conflictual, just like everything else. Hmm. And you use whatever weapons you've got. Well said. How does his work sit with you? Are there any problems, holes, lingering well, questions? We, we talked about one. Uh, positive human relationships. What did you want to see there? I would have liked to have seen an account of how one person can have, can gain strength from relating to another person. I don't find that very much. Uh, your, your strength in Nietzsche is solitary. And he was solitary. And... Uh, uh, so I think that's one problem. Where does the state come from? Where do societies come from? He doesn't, he's got an answer. His answer is uh, from domination. One group dominates another group, and voila, you've got a society with a government doing the dominating. I don't think that's just, you know, a very good or a complete way to account for governance among humans. Uh, so I think there's a lot of ways in which uh, he needs supplementation. He's He's one good side of things, but you need, you need to be able to give an account of how humans cooperate as well as how you go off and strike off on your own. Forgive the sports analogy. Hope you like basketball. Starting five philosophers for you personally, is he on that? Uh, probably. Can you name your starting five? Well, Hegel, who gives an account of human cooperation— <clears throat> and who, by the, was, by the way, was the first person to say that God is dead? Uh, Hegel. I think Heidegger, although he certainly got problems. Anybody who had a lifelong affinity for Nazism is somebody you've got to read critically at every step. But I think he's got some really valuable insights about nature and what it is to live in nature. Uh, Plato, who's a... Uh, just probably everything he says is false, but he probably knows that, and is having, he's having so much fun anyway. What do you mean by that? Well, uh, he's got this theory of forms, that there's a spiritual world in which the true natures of everything are located, and they never change. And I don't think he really takes that very seriously. He, he, uh, every single, I mean, when he writes the dialogues, most of them fail, to define a form. He never gets a form really defined. Maybe in the Republic, it's not clear what's going on there with the definition of justice. But he's, uh, in, the course of, in the course of that, he is, as one classicist told me, there's a lot of evidence now, persuasive evidence, that he was, he was the greatest writer ever to write anything in any language. And uh, uh, he's just really something to read, particularly, again, as, like Nietzsche, in the original language. Hmm. You named three out of your starting five. Okay, three. So 
Kant. Uh, and yeah, Nietzsche. Okay. Okay, he made Nietzsche it. Nietzsche and a, yeah, point guard. Love it. Point guard. I like that. Thank you. And I like that you took my analogy to its logical conclusion. Finally, someone listening to this today, uh, first of all, a lot of young people listen to the podcast because they're watching The Sopranos for the first time because they were too young to watch it when it originally aired. They're hopefully their parents blockaded them from it. If after hearing this conversation between us, they were so inclined to go and read some of Nietzsche's writings or some books about Nietzsche, can you make a recommendation, like a, a couple of books, top three list of go check these out if you're interested in the stuff that we talked about today? Well, I think Walter Kaufman, uh, anything by him. Uh, who else is really good on Nietzsche? Heidegger wrote four thick volumes on Nietzsche. I say stay away from that. Uh, Oh, yeah, as well as what not to read. Thank yeah, you. Good yeah. distinction. And uh, uh, there are a number of Nietzsche scholars that try to make him logical. They buy into the, the standard philosophy in this country of logical analysis, and they try to make him logical. I don't think that works very well. There's a, a guy named uh, Lawrence Hatab, H-A-T-A-B. He writes brilliantly on Nietzsche. He's right, and, and clearly and compactly, you can understand it, uh, he's really, really good, anything by him. And then by Nietzsche, uh, what I always teach, uh, first and foremost, is the genealogy of morals. Uh, genealogy of morals was written two years before he had his breakdown. So he's kind of losing it, but he's still pretty much in control. By the time you get to the works of the last year, he's out of control. He's, what were the works of his last year? Well, Ecce Homo, the Antichrist. Uh, things like that, and they're very revealing if you already know, you know what he's up to. If you have but, the context, but, but they're they they're they're literally demented. Uh, it's it's quite saddening to watch him try to cling to sanity and fail. Mm. Yeah. So I would say, uh, genealogy of morals, uh, human all too human. Thus spoke uh, Zarathustra. Those three would be good. Professor, thank you. Well, thank you. It's been fun. <laughs>